Note to the listener, this is going to be a fairly extensive essay, and uh, rather than do a a long podcast that might take uh, 30 minutes to even an hour uh, to broadcast, I'm going to break this into uh, uh, separate serial parts. I'm not quite sure how many there will be. It'll depend on how it times out. But I'm going to try to make uh, each serial uh, 10 minutes or so long. If I can't come up with a logical breakpoint at 10 minutes, uh, it might go a little bit longer. But that's what I'm going to be shooting at. So with that in mind, let me start. An Irish Devil's Coal by R.W. Murphy In Memoriam, Mother and Wife, Alice G. Murphy Quote, Who I annually profoundly aggravated with this story over the many Christmas seasons which followed, but who nevertheless found it in herself to smile each time with unbounded mercy towards her sons, even if through her clenched Irish teeth. R.W. Murphy It was Christmas Eve, 1985, some 32 years ago. I was just shy of my 35th birthday. My brother Joe was nine and a half years my junior. We had both flown to Boston a few days earlier to be with our parents, who lived in one of the nearby suburban towns. I had come from Lighthouse Point, Florida, near Fort Lauderdale. Joe had come from the Tampa Bay area. In my case, it had been a nomadic year. During 1985 alone, I had lived a few months each in the metro areas of Nashville, Philadelphia, and Fort Lauderdale. I had become a go-to corporate guy, and the bosses knew I traveled light. One of my moves had actually been executed in less than 24 hours from the time I got the assignment. Lock, stock, and barrel in the moving van, including a car. That year, I had transferred not only once, but twice on two corporate move packages, spending six months of it in hotel rooms and a couple of more months in a shabby, unfurnished apartment with my personal goods crated up in a warehouse. I was waiting for a more permanent project. South Florida appeared to be the end of my most recent odyssey. It had been five years in Nashville prior to that. Of course, all this was better than living out of a Navy sea bag as I once had. I had been looking for a specific present for our dad. He was an aviation aficionado, resulting from a short stint aboard the carrier USS Franklin at the very end of World War II, and followed by thousands of hours of civilian flying for his job. What I was seeking was a large formatted hard-covered book cataloging all the military aircraft of the world. Published by Jane's, it was the corresponding book to Jane's Fighting Ships, found on the bridge of just about every U.S. Navy ship afloat. I had come across both as a regular commissioned naval officer in the 1970s. The aircraft book measured about 14 inches wide by about 24 inches high, 
and must have weighed somewhere in the range of five pounds. It was a beast, to say the least. However, at least for me, it had become extremely hard to find, especially so in the pre-internet era of the mid-1980s. However, early in the morning of the 24th, I made a telephone call to a publisher's rep in Boston, who told me that he indeed had a copy, a single copy, a demo copy, sitting on a stand at his front desk. He offered to sell it to me at a fair, if steep, price. But there was a hitch. He was closing his office at noon that Christmas Eve, and if I wanted to purchase the book, I would have to get into Boston and to his office before noon. I looked at my watch. It would be close, but it was doable. His office was in the Back Bay area in the heart of Boston. We were just a few miles from a surface suburban train terminus, which went underground as the MBTA Orange Line subway in town. There were several stations within walking distance of his office. Going back a bit. As a teenager, I had prowled around the city for a few years prior to our family move to Florida in 1968. We actually lived in a pretty rural town, 20 miles north of Boston. However, I was going to an all-boys Catholic prep school, and many of my school chums lived in the closer urban suburbs. Since I was 15 years old in the mid-60s, I had been learning the ropes of skulking around Boston and the Harvard Square area of Cambridge from them, the latter during the heyday of the anti-Vietnam War hippie phenomena around Harvard following the Tet Offensive in early 68. On the other hand, Joe had only been nine years old when the family moved and he had no intuitive sense as to how to navigate Boston in 1985. As you will see, that lack of history remains one of the unsolved conundrums of this story. I asked Joe to come with me to Boston. I figured we would get the book, maybe have a little lunch, be back at my folks' house before dark in the late afternoon of Christmas Eve. With that plan in mind, Joe accepted my offer and we set out for the Oak Grove Station Orange Line. It was about three miles away and Joe drove my parents' primary car there. The ride into Boston on the train was uneventful. The station names ticked off in my mind like old friends as we headed in. I think it was about North Station where we went underground in the first subway tunnel. We got off a few miles further south at one of the Midtown Orange Line stations. No changes to other lines were required. It ended up being just a short walk to the publisher's rep's office, and we easily found it. We got there about 11.30 and beat his noon deadline. As he had told me on the phone, the book was sitting on the receptionist's counter in a display stand. It was in pristine condition. I had no qualms about snapping it up even at the price. As I recall, it was about $80 in 1985 currency, or about $200 today. The rep could have easily held me up for more. It was the ultimate supply and demand curve, zero elasticity. He had the only one, and it was Christmas Eve. My bargaining position was nil. I wrote a check. Joe and I left with a huge tome in hand, feeling like we had successfully pulled off a last-minute Christmas coup. 
I suggested that we have lunch in the Faneuil Hall area, which was pretty close by. It was a clear, warm December day, and sitting at one of the outside cafe tables, people watching, sounded like fun. The majority of sane people are not out strolling the tourist areas on Christmas Eve, but you would be surprised at how many still found their way there. A year earlier, I had gone skiing in the Mont Blanc area of the French Alps the same week. I had found the hotels and ski areas jammed with non-Christians, taking their holidays during an inexpensive, low-demand period. However, in Boston it was different. Faneuil Hall was awash in fellow Christian procrastinators and apostates. End of first segment. An Irish Devil's Coal by R. W. Murphy.